All right, we're back in Acts uh, tonight. Uh, you'll see in your bulletin, um, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll see that I, I skipped the first 22 verses, um, and we're actually going to skip the first 43 verses. Uh, bring me up on charges, fire me, um, but I'm just going to summarize those 43 uh, for us tonight, and then uh, really get after verses 44 through 48. So um, let me pray, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, uh, I, uh, in and of myself, I have uh, no power. Not just little power, I have none. I can get up here and talk and nothing will happen. Uh, But Lord, you uh, can talk. You can talk through your word and by the power of your spirit and make us new. Would you do that uh, even now? In Christ's name, amen. Um, Have you ever felt like an outsider? I have uh, on several occasions. Actually, most of my life I felt like an outsider, uh, but three really came to mind thinking about it this week. Uh, the first was when I was in high school. Uh, when I was in high school, I went with my church uh, to Mexico on a mission trip, and the only white people I saw all week were the people who were from my church. Uh, not only did I feel like an outsider because of my skin color, I also felt uh, like an outsider because of my height. Every time I walked up to a, a new Mexican friend, they kept going like this and laughing at me. And um, I, get, I felt like a freak, and I guess I kind of am. Um, another time I felt like an outsider was the first time I went to Jenna's uh, family's, one of their big functions. It was Thanksgiving. Everybody was there, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, a bunch of kiddos, running around like crazy. And I was the only person there who wasn't blood and wasn't married in, because Jenna and I were just dating. Now, something you need to know about Jenna's family is that it's uh, Italian, like their last name is Marcasano, Italian. Um, and everybody jokes about Grandpa being the godfather, and um, I, to this day, think it's true. <laughs> I really thought it was true the first time I was around him, so I was scared. I was not in the mafia. I was an outsider. Uh, the other incident uh, that comes to mind was um, in college, I went to Athens, Georgia, uh, to see UK play Georgia, and our team was terrible this year, and uh, we were up at halftime. I had a friend who went to Georgia. I sat next to him in the stadium. I was the only person that seemed like within miles that was wearing blue. We were up at halftime, shockingly, and I was the only person not just wearing blue, but I was the only person who was excited. Um, I felt like an outsider. But what have you felt like an outsider? You, you know you're an outsider just when you're different. In every single room you walk into, there's a list of expectations that a person must meet in order to not be taboo. In Mexico, I was taboo for being tall. In Jenna's family, I was taboo for not being a part of the mafia. Uh, At Sanford Stadium in Athens, Georgia, I was taboo because I was wearing blue. Now, these are small things, and they illustrate really a much more serious point for us. See, we not only know the expectations we must meet in order to be on the inside, but we have expectations that others must meet for them to be on the inside with us. For instance, we've got these expectations on who we're going to hire. We have these expectations about who we're going to buy from. We have expectations about the kinds of people that our kids are going to run around with. And perhaps most disturbing, we're committed to a certain kind of person who's going to be a Christian, a certain kind of person who's going to be a part of this church. 
And what the book of Acts does is that it continues to push the envelope on who's in and who's out. It's been doing it since Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 in many ways serves as a theme verse for the entire book. Jesus is looking at his apostles. This is right before his ascension. He gives them one big fat command before he goes back up into heaven to be with the Father. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now they can handle this Jerusalem. They can handle Judea because most of those people are their kind of folks. They're Jews. Samaria is tough, but Samaria even has some Jewishness about it. But the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth is going to mean that they're going to have to engage with Gentiles. They're going to have to engage with those non-Jews at some point if they're going to follow the command of Jesus. Now, I can just imagine, you know, the apostles are sitting around looking at each other, hoping Jesus doesn't lock eyes with them when he says that ends of the earth part. They're really hoping that Jesus uh, is going to pick, you know, to you two or three, you do the Jerusalem thing, you do the Judea thing, you do the Samaria thing, and then you two or three do the ends of the earth thing. They're really hoping that Jesus passes out a card where you put your first, second, third, and fourth preference. And all of them, in order of preference, would have put Judea two, Samaria three, and ends of the earth. They were... But the apostles find out what are we all Jesus is that Jesus is going to get you to go where you need to go, even when you don't volunteer. And the apostles end up with those kind of people in Acts 10. They end up with a Gentile. So let's read, uh, in many ways, the summary statement, verses 44 through 48 together. While Peter was still saying these things, you could have looked up 34 to 43, saying these things. This is his sermon uh, that he gives to Cornelius and Cornelius' household and uh, those who are around Cornelius. I'll tell you about Cornelius here in a minute. So while Peter was preaching to these people, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. You know, what does that sound like? It sounds like what happened in Acts 2, doesn't it? When the Holy Spirit fell on them. It fell on Jews in Acts 2. And now the Holy Spirit's fallen on Gentiles here in Acts 10. Verse 30, 46. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The word of the Lord. So I really want to ask two questions of our text tonight. Uh, Who's in and who's out? Who's in and who's out? We're going to look at Cornelius first and we're going to look at Peter. So let's look at Cornelius first. Uh, if, If we had it all in there, it didn't all fit, but... In verse 1 of chapter 10, you find out who Cornelius is. He's a centurion. Now, remember, if you know anything about the New Testament, you know uh, that, uh, that Rome was occupied, or that Jerusalem was occupied by Romans. The Jews were living there in Israel, and they weren't governing themselves. Their land had been conquered by the Romans, and now the Romans were ruling over them. But don't picture when you picture the Romans ruling over the Jews, don't picture them being enslaved. 
Because in many ways, the arrangement between the Romans and the Jews was very peaceable because they let the Jews practice their religion. They let them practice their customs as they saw fit. However, just because it was peaceful doesn't mean that the Jews were welcoming of the Romans. The Jews were simmering with bitterness towards the Jews. Or the Jews were simmering with bitterness towards the Romans. They were tired of being excessively taxed. They were tired of not governing themselves. They were tired of seeing these centurions, essentially these Roman soldiers, stationed in their streets to make sure that they were staying in line. So in some ways, you can see how these Roman centurions have had come to stand as the symbol, the symbol of oppression for the Jews. So if these centurions, if they were symbols of oppression, then surely they're considered outsiders. Surely they're considered those people. Surely they're considered other. And in short, sure enough, these centurions were taboo. No self-respecting Jew would be lined up, ready to be a neighbor with a centurion. They thought the centurions drove down their property value. They certainly wouldn't let their children marry the the son or daughter of a centurion. They wouldn't be sending Christmas cards to a centurion. And so the centurion that we meet here in Acts 10, Cornelius, is beyond the pale of God's grace, according to Peter. So in many ways, it looks like Cornelius is out because of his, his ethnicity. But then it looks like Cornelius is in. It looks like he's in when you look at verse 2, and verse 2 says this. It describes Cornelius as a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. Sounds like a good dude to me. He's generous with his money. He's got his household in order. He's got a belief in God. He's a man of prayer. but he's not in. Now, I know he's a good man, but he's lost. He needs a Savior. And you can tell that he needs a Savior not because of my assessment, not because of even Peter's assessment of his morality, but because of his own. Cornelius has this hunger in his soul for something more than just being a good person. That's why he seeks out Peter. Peter doesn't find him. Cornelius finds Peter. And when he finds Peter, he still has this need to be converted. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit yet. He's got to hear the gospel. And that's what Peter does in verses 34 through 43 when Cornelius shows up on his doorstep. Can you imagine that scene? (laughs) And he says, hey, will you tell me how to be saved? And Peter's like, you've got to be kidding me. I actually have to tell this guy. And then in verse 44, you see what happens. The Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius. So just because he was a good dude doesn't mean that he was in. So if Cornelius isn't out because of his race, and if he's not in because of his morality, what does it mean to be in? Who's in? Well, look at Peter. Think about Peter for a moment. Peter, so far in the book of Acts, uh, he's an apostle. He's had huge ministry success up to this point in Acts 10. 
He's been healing the sick. He's been raising the dead. He's been converting the masses. But something is off for Peter. God's got to correct his thinking on something. So what he does is that he puts Peter into a trance. And in this trance, the same vision comes to Peter three times in a row. God's got this tool of repetition to make sure that we understand what we need to understand, doesn't he? And so he uses this tool and he pulls it out on Peter. And the vision that he sees over and over again, three times, is that there's going to be this sheet. This sheet has a bunch of animals on it. It's going to fall. And when the sheet falls and Peter can see the animals, a voice comes to Peter in the dream and says, now take and eat. And Peter essentially says, are you kidding me? I can't eat those animals. They're unclean. They will make me unholy. And it shows us that Peter doesn't get it. It shows that he hasn't fully adjusted to the ways of Jesus. These Jewish dietary laws have passed. Jesus has come on the scene. Peter's forgotten that salvation was determined by one's faith in Jesus, not one's commitment to Jewish ceremonial law. But the problem for Peter goes beyond dietary laws. Because the principle he applied to food is what he applied to people. This food was good. This food was bad. These people are good. These people are bad. And so God catches Peter red-handed. He shows Peter that he's a bigot. And he put Cornelius on his front porch to highlight the issue for Peter. So you read about these two guys in Acts 10, and Cornelius comes out looking a lot better than Peter does because of Peter's bigotry. And maybe for many of you, bigotry might be the unforgivable sin. You can put up with a lot of faults in other people, except bigotry, and I can understand that. I want to discard those kind of people too. I want to distance myself from them in every possible way, yet God doesn't do that with Peter. He doesn't wipe his hands clean of Peter and move on to someone who's more inclusive. Somehow God thinks he's got something he can work with with Peter. And so what God does is that he pushes through Peter's bigotry in order to get him to see that Gentiles have every right to a relationship with God that Jews do. So, we see that ethnicity is not what counted Cornelius out. We see that Peter's ethnicity is not what gets him in. Then we see that Cornelius' morality didn't get him in and that Peter's bigotry didn't count him out. So I got to keep asking the question, how do we get in? We still don't know that yet. We see it in what we read earlier. You see it in those last five verses of chapter 10. Peter has seen that the Holy Spirit has now fallen on Cornelius, has fallen on Cornelius' household, has fallen on Cornelius' friends, and that they're converted at the end of his sermon. And then Peter can't argue with the fact in verse 46 when you see that they're praising God. And so that's why he says what he does in verse 47. He says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we 
hath. See, Peter finally gets it. After being shown the vision three times, after having a Gentile, a centurion, Cornelius, show up on his front steps, after seeing these Gentiles converted, Peter gets it. So in some ways, in an ironic fashion, Peter and Cornelius understand at the same time that it's not their morality and it's not their ethnicity that gets them in. See, we've got the same problem as Cornelius and Peter. We size ourselves up by what we do, our morality, and by what we look like, our ethnicity, in order to see where we are with God. But what we see in our text is that it's not what we do and it's not the way we look that saves us. Brothers and sisters, for our whole lives, we've got to fight at a heart level to see that our standing before God is not based on our ethnicity, it's not based on our moral accomplishments. The marker of being in the family of God has nothing to do with your nationality, nothing to do with your ethnicity, nothing to do with your race, nothing to do with your morality. The marker, the marker of being in a relationship with God is the Holy Spirit. That's how you know you're in. And you get the Holy Spirit when you respond to the gospel message in faith and repentance. And when you have the Holy Spirit, then that becomes the strongest bond by which you can connect with any other human being. It's not your Enneagram. It's not your DNA. It's not your socioeconomic background. It's not your political persuasion. All of those are far less powerful bonds than the bond of the Holy Spirit. And that's hard to believe day to day, friends. So how do we stay in step with this truth? Well, I think our text gives us three good ways forward. The first one is repent of our ethnocentricity. (laughs) I know that's a big word. I don't even know how many letters that is. It's a bunch. Repent of our ethnocentricity. Now, I'm uh, a pastor, and it means that I get to be uh, the chief repenter around here. And me and my family, we've lived in this neighborhood. We've lived here for three and a half years. It's been a really long journey of repentance for us, especially when it comes to this whole thing of race and ethnicity. And the latest instance of how this has happened came in a restaurant here in our neighborhood. I've been there a bunch of times. It's great food, great service. And when I go, I'm usually one of the few white people in the establishment. And this time I got there about 20 minutes early. I thought maybe, you know, I could crack open my laptop, shoot off a couple emails, uh, maybe get into a book. So I took my backpack in there with me, had lunch with who I was meeting with. I went out, went back out to my car. I'm about halfway from uh, this restaurant back here to the church. And it occurs to me, oh, shoot, I think I forgot my backpack at the restaurant. It's not safe there for the, with those people. I was caught red-handed. I didn't even make it back here to the church. I had to pull over, find a parking spot, and weep before the Lord. Because if that restaurant was full of white people, 
I wouldn't have felt that way. So I've repented before God. I've repented before you here this evening. Would you allow the Holy Spirit to do the same for you? See, it's really hard to see where your taboos are if you're living a fairly monocultural life. And the best way to begin the journey is to make some choices on how to be around people who are different than you. And maybe that choice might even be moving into the neighborhood. A mentor of mine, uh, he's, he pastored a large, wealthy Presbyterian church uh, for a couple decades. And he, I heard him tell a story where he said uh, that when people would come up to him and, and, and they used to ask him, hey, can I bring my poor friend here to our wealthy church? And he said that he would respond time and time and time again. He'd say, sure, you can bring them here. I'd love if you brought them here, but it, 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 it might be better if, if you found a healthy gospel-centered church in their neighborhood so that they might feel comfortable. And he said he learned very late in his ministry that this was really cheap advice. And he had to begin to repent. And he had to begin to work to make sure that all types of people felt welcome in his church. And brothers and sisters, we've got to do the same. We're going to have to be intentionally naive on who feels comfortable around here. We're going to have to trust that the love of Jesus covers a multitude of awkwardness. And for those of you who aren't majority around here, let me say a word to you. We need you. I mean, really, really, really need you. We need your presence. And even more, we need your voice. You're going to be the ones who help us move the needle needle to become a church that begins to reflect our neighborhood. So number one, how to stay in step with the gospel in this regard is to repent of our ethnocentricity. Number two, I'll repent of our morality. See, a default setting for us is, is to rely uh, not just on our tribe, but on our goodness for our justification. I mean, look at the centurion here. He, he was generous, religious, he was prayerful, but it wasn't enough for him. Well, maybe you've been fooled. Maybe you've been fooled that it's your church membership, it's your theology, it's your moral record, and you think that's enough to justify you before a holy God. But friends, Jesus didn't come into the world, live a perfect life, die a gruesome death, raise again from the grave, ascend into heaven, and send the Holy Spirit to make you nice. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. So would you rather be nice or alive? Through Jesus, you can be alive, brother or sister. Maybe you need to repent on the other side. See, repenting of your morality doesn't just mean repenting for thinking that being nice is going to get you into heaven. Repenting of your morality also means that there's no unforgivable sin. See, at some point, Peter had to believe that his bigotry didn't keep him out of the kingdom. 
He had to believe that the blood of Jesus was more powerful than his bigotry. And maybe you've got something that you deem as unforgivable. That you need to see that the blood of Jesus is more powerful than. You need to repent of your morality. And last one. Number three. We need to place our faith in Jesus who crossed borders. See, lost in all this, we're just thinking, you know, racial, ethnic stuff here, aren't we? And in part, that's part of what the gospel deals with. This is a salvation issue. If you look at Ephesians 2, if you went home and read that tonight, you'd see in the first 10 verses, you'll see that, you were, that we were all children of disobedience, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, that we were children of wrath. But God made us alive in Christ. Talking about our vertical relationship with God. Then you hit chapter, then you hit verse 11 and you get to the end of chapter 2 and it deals with things on a horizontal level. And when it deals with things on a horizontal level, it's not just saying, hey, now uh, you can be friends with one another. You can repent to one another. You can forgive one another. You can experience reconciliation in friendships. Now that's true. It's just not what Ephesians 2 says. The second half of Ephesians 2 talks about this reconciliation not happening between individuals who may have been mad at each other. The second half of Ephesians talks about Jesus tearing down the dividing wall of hostility so that different races could be bonded with one another in Christ. See, Jesus crossed a much more significant border than the centurion crossed when he looked Peter in the eye. Now, there's a vast cultural difference right there. See, Jesus left folk who were like him, people who weren't like him. He's to go to a place where he would be rejected. Why did he do it? He did it because he loved you. He did it so that you might be in relationship with him. He did it so that you might be so secure in the bond of the Spirit that you could reach out to people who are different than you and risk rejection. See, friends, this is not a diversity issue. This is a gospel issue. And this is something the Holy Spirit wants to do in you, in me, and in our church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being willing to endure the pain, to endure the awkwardness, to endure the discomfort of coming to us that we might be in relationship with you. Oh, Lord, would you open our hearts? Would you first towards you and then to one another? Do this for your glory, we ask. Amen.